You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is taken from Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. There's a question that we've all been presented with at one time or another, and it goes like this. What do you want first, the good news or the bad news? Statistics show that more than 75% of us, when presented with that question, will choose the bad news. Give me the bad news, because then we'll end on the good news. And Paul, being a very thoughtful pastor, begins with the bad news. And this is important not just because it is a helpful, uh, you know, motivational method, but because this is also deeply theological. And the reason is this, that you cannot appreciate nor receive the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ without first receiving the bad news of sin and judgment. Deliverance doesn't make sense if we didn't know that we needed saving or what we needed saving from. Imagine a knight in shining armor riding up to you. I'm here to save you. And you look around. Uh from what? I didn't know that I needed saving. But a lot of Christian evangelism is like this knight in shining armor. Jesus came to save you, but without explaining from what? What are we being saved from? What is the cross? Why the cross? Why are we even needing to be delivered? 
And so Paul, in this portion of Romans, is going to show us that what we need saving from isn't simply bad habits or low self-esteem or loneliness, but something far more fierce. And this powerful gospel that Romans introduces us to is going to have very little impact on your life or anyone around you if you're unwilling to acknowledge what the Bible says here is revealed from heaven. And beginning in verse 18, we're told this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What do we need saving from? Paul tells us the wrath of God. His just anger against the ways that we distort life through our selfishness, that we undermine God's good design for flourishing through our sin, and ultimately against the ways that we rebel against his authority through serving idols, the wrath of God. Now, we have a lot of ground to cover today, so we're just going to jump right into it. I've got five points, and the first of which is this, leveling the field, leveling the field. Now, while we may be tempted to view this passage as simply bad news to certain kinds of people with certain, certain kinds of lifestyles that act in certain kinds of behaviors, and I know you began to already peg those people as you heard this, this passage being read today. But however, the, the, the overall purpose of this section of Romans that we're looking at today is actually intended to level the playing field especially because there was a sense of superiority that was occurring within the first century Roman church between two particular groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, that dynamic doesn't exist for us in our church specifically, but this sort of thing happens all the time, the us versus them mentality, and a sense of superiority that comes with we are in the right and you are in the wrong. In fact, the Apostle Paul seems to be doing something very intentional here, and I'm going to warn you right now, he's setting you up. Thirteen times in this passage, he says they. 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 They didn't honor God. They became foolish. They did this. They did that. They did these shameful sexual things. They, 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 they. And the self-righteousness in us takes the bait. You probably took the bait. The self-righteousness in us begins to well up and say things like, you know what, yeah, they are pretty bad. You know, I'm, gl I'm glad the church is finally talking about this, these sort of things. These, these need to be handled in the church. You know, culture is just out of hand. The church needs to stand. And I'm glad it's them, it's not me. You know, I, have, I may have my flaws, but I'm certainly not like them. But then he goes on. And they gossip. And they talk crap behind people's back. And you're like, uh, well, okay, we have a few things in common. And they boast. And they envy. I'm getting a little awfully specific here, Paul. And they disobey their parents. And the kids are like, oh. And we begin to realize something. Paul, you sneaky son of a gun. They is us. Them is me. And in the next chapter, 
he's going to change the pronouns completely. They, 13 times in this section, and then the very next section, 14 times, he will say, you. Therefore, you have no excuse. You. So Romans 1, 18 through 32, the passage that we're looking at this morning is the great leveler that shows us that all men and women are guilty of sin and are left without excuse and are trapped in idolatry. That all sin is deserving of spiritual death and every single person is going to have to come to terms with the fact that there is a just and holy God who is angry his, and his wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, which is sin against him, and all unrighteousness, which is sin against humanity. And therefore, all, despite race, or gender, or religion, or sexual orientation, must repent, which means turning from our sin, and turn to Christ in faith for rescue. No one person more than the other. What this means is that we have to abandon the us versus them mindset that so many of us have. As we in God's church divide the world into groups, the good and the bad, the right and the wrong, the left and the right, the welcome and the unwelcome. You see, for years, we have tried to establish equality in humanity based on the biblical concept of the Imago Dei, that we are all created in the image of God. And this goes back to the civil rights and way past that in history. And while this is right and while this is foundational, it's only partially true. It only gets us so far. There are two additional truths that are absolutely necessary in order to level the field among all people. And it's what we're confronted with in this passage, that all stand guilty before a holy God who will judge us. And that this grace and forgiveness and rescue come to all who turn to Jesus in faith. We need a comprehensive and humbling view of sin and judgment in order to achieve the unity and the equality that we all claim to care about. You have to be bold. You have to be courageous. You have to be forthright about these essential truths of the Bible if we're ever going to achieve what we desire to see in humanity. So we see leveling the field. We see, secondly, suppressing the truth. Verse 18, going on to say, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Jesus in John chapter 8 said, the truth will set you free. Truth is a vehicle. And as we're told here, truth leads us to liberation unless it's denied. In which case, it leads us in the opposite direction. If truth is the vehicle that leads us to freedom in Christ, then as Paul shows us, the other side of that coin is that the suppression of truth leads us further into a life of bondage and slavery and foolishness. And so Paul tells us in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In 1992, cosmologists received signals from space that identified a, a pattern of tiny little temperature fluctuations in the universe. And interestingly enough, this was something that Einstein had predicted decades before this. And these little signals indicated a ripple effect of this sort of sudden mass expansion of the universe, that at some point in time, the universe had suddenly stretched and expanded into where it is. 
And George Smoot, one of the leading uh, individuals in this discovery, famously said, if you are religious, this is like seeing God. Like, if that's your thing, this is like seeing God. And what he was saying was that this is a discovery that has some sort of distinct divine fingerprint upon it. This is the undeniable evidence of some sort of powerful force beyond humanity. And what Paul is saying here is that as we contemplate nature, that there's enough evidence to show us the reality of a creator God, his eternal power, his divine character, that there is enough evidence to prevent any of us to ever attributing all of this to just some chance, some random chance that creation is intricate and beautiful enough to leave us without any excuses for ever denying God's involvement. Christianity is not the suppression of science and truth. It's the unlocking of it. For so long, the claim is that Christianity suppresses facts, suppresses truth, but Paul turns the table. He says, no, without this acknowledgement of God, you're suppressing knowledge. You're suppressing truth. It's the key to all of nature's beauty around us. Now, unfortunately, this has been misunderstood by Christians in the past who saw it as their responsibility to sort of pit faith and science against each other, which absolutely misses the point. The Bible says that the heavens declare God's glory, that the earth is filled with his glory. This is just biblical, worshipful way of saying that nature is a window into heaven. Nature is a window into the vastness of God. And scientific discovery screams of God's creative touch regardless of whether or not the scientific community acknowledges it. We don't need a scientist to put his finger down on it and say this is from God for us to acknowledge the beauty in it. Molecules and mitosis and elements and electricity and energy and fossils and fusion and mammals and mass and minerals and meteors and solar systems and supernovas, they're all one big announcement of God's wisdom and power. To look at a sunset or to hold an infant, or to plant a tree, or to hike a mountain. It all removes any excuses from any individual ever saying, I just didn't know there was a God. It takes away any plead of ignorance. And he's been announcing his existence, his presence to all people throughout all of creation ever since the very beginning. And so anyone who has ever lived and breathed a second in this world has a decision to make. To either go on ignoring God and suppressing that knowledge or acknowledge his presence and fall on your knees and experience the awe that is produced in the presence of such wisdom and power. Deny him or worship him. Richard Loveless once said that if the fall occurred through the embracing of lies, remember Adam and Eve and the slithering serpent who deceived them. If the fall occurred through the embracing of lies, then the recovery process of salvation must center on faith in truth, reversing this condition. So here's the option, friend. Will you suppress that knowledge? 
Will you suppress the reality of God's presence in this world? Or will you surrender to the truth of God? We see suppressing knowledge. Thirdly, we see exchanging the glory. Now, this passage shows us what is at the, the core of the human problem, what has caused us to be out of joint with God, others, and ourselves. And it all stems back to an issue of worship. Look with me again in this passage, starting in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him and exchange the glory. So there's a summary. Exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Going on to say, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and here it is, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So you look around at the world, you look around at brokenness, you look at the evil in the world, you look at the brokenness in your own life, and you can reduce it to this. The problem we all have, every single one of us, is that we have put created things in the place of the creator. We have exchanged the glory. The word that the Bible uses for this is idolatry. It means taking anything in creative order, even good things, and elevating it to a place of ultimate in our lives. Now, Paul uses first century ancient pagan examples. But we do the very same thing. We exchange the glory of the immortal living God for things like wealth. We worship success. We worship fame. We worship power. We worship pleasure. We worship family and children and spouses and relationship and freedom and nation. We've all done this. No one can say, well, I'm not religious. I don't worship. That's not true. We are, as, as anthropologists have been calling us for years, homo religiosus, which I know sounds like a Harry Potter spell. Homo religiosus, which essentially means that human existence is inherently religious. You are religious whether you like it or not. The late David Foster Wallace, who was not particularly religious, said these words, he said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, theirs is not particularly religious part, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start, start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. You see, nothing but God can bear the weight of your soul. Nothing in all of creation was designed to be able to hold up your soul and your hopes. And so the moment that we begin to idolize a created thing, our relationship with that thing becomes broken. It becomes fragile. It becomes smothered. It becomes compromised. We hurt it and it hurts us because it was never designed to work that way. 
And what we see here is that when our worship is distorted, what ends up happening is our view of life becomes distorted. Breakdown in our worship results in breakdown in how we relate to others and ourselves. And the list of sins here is actually very vast. There's heart sins. There's social sins. There's relational sins. There's sexual sins. There's sins against God. There's sins against others. And so this is the progression that we have to notice here. We, verse 23, we first exchange the glory. And because we exchange the glory, then verse 25, we exchange the truth. And then, then verse 26, because we exchange the truth, we then, in the long run, begin to exchange, quote, what is natural. We begin moving in a way that is actually, actually contrary to our nature. Because when we resist, what we should naturally do is created things, and that's worship our creator. When we resist this motion, unnatural things begin to occur in our lives. Now, the elephant in the room is this. Paul explicitly uses example of sexual relations between same-sex partners. That is there. And what we see from the scripture, and, and really what we see from the, 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 the scriptures as a whole, is that anything outside of God's original design for sex, which is between one woman and one man, and only within the covenant of marriage, there it is. Anything outside of that original design is by definition a violation of God's creative order. It's moving against what God has originally intended. Now, before you put your arms up, I need you to remember something. That this is confronting all people. And really, he seems to be addressing heterosexual inordinate lusts in verse 24 first. And then same-sex relations. And this is important for us to remember that inside the church and outside the church, every single day, brokenness is being expressed heterosexually and, homosexual, and homosexually. We have all, because of sin, dishonored our bodies and therefore the bodies of others. And so whether it's men with men, whether it's women with women, or whether it's a man with a woman, any and all forms of sex outside of God's very particular design for marriage is unfit for God's people, and it compromises God's design for human flourishing. For all, for all of us, there are areas in our sexuality that are broken, that are expressed brokenly, and that hurt and wound not only others, but ourselves. Now, I don't have time nor really the authority to go into extensive stats, but generally speaking, what we see is that the higher level of promiscuity, just promiscuity in general, leads to things like higher levels of divorce, which then end up having relational impact, family impact, economic impact. The higher level of promiscuity leads to, uh, statistics, statistically speaking, leads to a higher uh, likelihood of dependence on substance, and they're even finding higher levels of anxiety and other mental, uh, mental health issues. Okay, so generally speaking, God's design for us is, whether you believe it or not, good for us, and good for our overall health and our future. But let me say this, this is not intended to be ammo 
against our broken culture as if we are the moral police out there like issuing violations against God's word. We don't change culture by criticizing it. We don't change culture by condemning it. We don't change culture by condoning it. We change culture by compelling it, by living lives of beauty and love and truth, by living lives of conviction. And so the most compelling witness that we can offer to a sexually broken world are marriages that are beautiful and faithful and joyful and contentment-filled celibacy. If you're a Christian, those are your two options. A beautiful and faithful marriage or a joyful and contentment-filled celibacy. And before we are out criticizing the culture about how it is misrepresenting marriage and misrepresenting God's intended design for family, we gotta look within first and see the brokenness in our own lives and the ways that we have distorted God's word in the name of Jesus Christ. If you study the history of pandemics, there's actually this strange trend that appears. In times of pandemic, people have this very conservative impulse. Relationships become more monogamous. People end up saving money. They become risk averse. But then in the years following, it becomes very licentious. People begin to kind of wild out. We saw that with the Spanish flu and then the roaring 20s. And researchers are actually anticipating something very similar happening. Right now, they're seeing an increase in number of monogamous relationships. People are saving money. People are being risk averse. But in the years to come, God knows what's going to happen. And the reason I share that is it's so extremely important that we are prepared for seasons of changing moral standards and culture. Because whether we like it or not, society is constantly fluctuating in what it gives approval to. Should we remember that society, the majority of society, gave approval to slavery for hundreds of years in our nation? The moral majority or the majority doesn't necessarily represent what is best. And so the way that we prepare for this is by being anchored in God's word and in worship. And if distorted worship is what leads to sin, then it's going to be restored worship of God that leads us to lives of holiness and conviction. It's going to be restored worship that allows us to navigate the cultural changes safely. So here's what I'm calling you to, church. You need to make a determination now, not in the heat of the moment, now. And that determination needs to be this, that you are unwilling to make these exchanges that we see here. Unwilling to exchange the glory. Unwilling to exchange the truth. Unwilling to exchange God's design for human flourishing in your life and the life of the church. Fourthly, we see granting the demand. Granting the demand. Three times, God's wrath against ungodliness is described in this passage. But it's not how you would expect it. If I were to come to you and I'm, and I'm like, hey, how do you envision God's wrath being poured out on humanity? What, 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 how do you envision it happening? You'd probably say, like, I don't know, like, fire from heaven or the ground opening up and swallowing someone or being struck by lightning. Instead, Romans 1 describes God's wrath, his fiercest attribute, like this. God gave them up. God gave them up. Three times, God gave them up. 
It's interesting. We're always so afraid of not getting our way in life. We're always so afraid of things not working out the way that we had planned, or the way that we had hoped. And yet, friend, do you realize that the scariest thing that could actually happen to a person is the total freedom to have life go their way? For God to allow someone to simply have it their way, to experience the horrible freedom that we often demand. See, the autonomy that we demand in life, the freedom to follow our hearts and to obey our desires and to obey our dreams is actually the worst thing that God could do for you. It's the worst thing that God could do for you. See, the psalmist tells us that God will fulfill the desires of our hearts. I am so convinced this is true. And this is not just a good thing, this is a bad thing. Because there are countless people in this world winning where God has fulfilled the desires of their hearts. It's good news if, you're, if you've received a new heart through faith in Jesus Christ, because that means your desires are now becoming, coming into alignment with what God desires for you. But otherwise, this is absolutely frightful. Because wrath is God letting you go down the destructive path of self. To experience the pain and the frustration and the heartache and the emptiness now and on into eternity, taking the worst of your broken experience and compounding it on and on and on and on, never breaking free from the broken cycle, always grasping and never obtaining, enslaved to your passions, forever failing to experience the joy and the fulfillment that you had hoped to achieve. Utter futility. C.S. Lewis once said that there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. It's quite simple. Not easy, but simple. You either say to God, have your way in my life. Or God says to you, have your way in your life. Now, while this portion of Romans is, is pretty grim, what we have to remember is that it fits into the overall letter that's centered on the gospel. There's tension. I feel the tension. But in a few chapters, Paul's going to relieve that tension for us, and I'd be remiss not to lead us there now. In Romans 5, verses 8 through 9, we're told this, but God shows his love for us, but God. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. See, we put created things in the place of the creator. That's the bad news. It's sin. But the good news is that the creator himself put himself in the place of the created. He was forsaken. He was punished in our place on the cross so that we could be delivered. He was abandoned so that we could be brought in. And if hell is our demand to get away from God, 
Get the hell away from me. Then salvation is God's demand to overcome our enmity with his love. Salvation is God's determination to resist our resistance and win. And what we need to recognize today is that the places of our deepest brokenness, the places of our deepest shame, the places of our deepest rebellion and sin are the very places that God's love is drawn to most. And so we don't push him away. We don't resist him. We welcome him by faith, knowing that only he can heal and satisfy those deepest places of our hearts. And finally, and very briefly, desiring the new. See, we're not just delivered from the punishment of sin and slavery from idolatry. Christianity isn't just what we've been saved from, but what we've been saved into. And we have been welcomed into a new way of living through the resurrection, a whole new humanity where our desires and our passions begin to bend toward what God desires, where we are no longer motivated by pleasure-seeking and selfishness, but the all-consuming joy of worshiping God in his presence. This is what the theologians of old, uh, of old called the expulsive power of a new affection, which means that we exchange the old affections for a new affection, putting something more beautiful and satisfying before our hearts in order to not be pulled back in the direction we once went. And so if sin and bondage came through an exchange of glory, then a transformed life of freedom will come as we exchange it back. Friend, for too long, you have seen Christianity as simply saying no to pleasurable things. It's all about what you have to say no to. But it's so much more. And I want you to discover, I, I'm inviting you to discover today that it's about saying yes to the most enjoyable thing. Christianity is about discovering what the psalmist discovered in God. In Psalm 16, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the...